When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. We are recording this at the beginning of December 2023. Quick check-in, guys. How are we, how are we feeling here at the edge of the new year? <laughs> the edge of the universe. Uh, pretty good, I think. You know, all in all, things considered. Yeah. Okay, uh, not great, but we'll get through it. I'm just being uh, optimistic, you know. There's <laughs> certainly room for improvement. I know. This would be where the internet says, insert gif of someone vaguely gesturing at everything. Uh, we, have a, we have a bit of a December-ish episode tonight, folks. Cast your memories back. It's December 15th, 1944. The legendary band leader Glenn Miller is flying from London to Paris. Glenn is excited. He's bringing his band to the European front. Glenn is also, to be honest, massively irritated because it turns out he's been trying to catch this flight to France for several days. And then somewhere over the English Channel, his plane disappears. Almost 80 years later to the day, people are still asking what happened to Glenn Miller. Here are the facts. You guys know Glenn. You're musicians, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, seriously, yeah, it's yeah. it's so weird. In preparation for this episode, I didn't. I if I would have, if you would have told me, hey Matt, who's Glenn Miller? I would have gone, I don't know. But if you if you realize who he is, I guess in researching him, you're like, dang, this guy had a lot of influence on a lot of people, and and I think music in general. Uh, guys, can we just talk quickly about the thing that made his orchestras sound unique? Mm, the fingerprint, yeah. Mm-hmm. The horns, right? Yeah, it's the horn because he was he was a famous trombonist. I'm sure he was a multi instrument instrumentalist. I guess is the way you'd say that. But uh, he was known for his trombone work. And when he would compose music, he would use the horns section. So like we're talking trumpets and trombones, other horns with saxophones. And what was it? He would play like 
the same melody with both instruments at different octaves to give it a very, I don't know, just cool. Loved man. a clarinet too, that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, he was born in 1904 in Iowa, March 1st. And for a while, he studied at the University of Colorado. He did take a music course. He got an incomplete, by the <laughs> way. And uh, he dropped out to work full time as a musician. As you said, Matt, uh, his primary instrument was the trombone. He was a tromboner, a trombonist. <laughs> No pun left behind. Uh, Before you go on, I think it's so funny. You're talking about the University of Colorado. When you go to their website, they've got a huge page about him. And he's literally like showed up and was like, I'll take this. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, He also made a name for himself as an arranger, a composer, later a band leader. And as we all know, the life of a musician can be immensely challenging. So this guy goes from gig to gig, from band to band before he gets hired on to play trombone for Ben Pollock's orchestra in the mid-1920s. And then after that, Fleetwood Mac style, he goes his own way. He's back to freelancing. And at some point, I believe in the late 30s, he says, why don't I start a band? Yep. And that lasted for about a year. Uh, (laughs) He was like, yeah, man, I've got a band. And people loved it, or at least people who were influential and important within the music industries, maybe at the time. Um, But yeah, it lasted about a year. And almost immediately, he started up with another group of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this first one, as you said, was sort of a critic's darling, not a lot of mainstream notice, but people who heard it loved it. They loved what he was doing. And his second group really hit the zeitgeist. People loved this stuff. They played ballrooms. They played casinos. Uh, I've never seen a live band at a casino. What? Maybe I mean, I guess maybe that's a little bit of a dated thing. Like now it's Mm -hmm. more like stage, you know, floor shows or, you know, like magic or Cirque du Soleil, that kind of stuff. But back in the day, yeah, I mean, back in the day, it was like, I mean, we know, I think from our trip to Vegas and learning a lot of the history is that a lot of the the rules around who could and could not go into casinos pertaining to race had direct uh, directly to do with some of these really hot, high level performers who were starting to not all be, you know white. Uh, I think Sammy Davis Jr. led to a lot of changes or even the formation of a very specific casino that did allow black folks to patronize it and not just have to be, you know, swooped in the the back door. Well, yeah. And this is my problem as well with just the cultural difference of the 1930s to now and everything that I've ever known growing up. There, the dance club or a, a place where you would go out to dance with somebody or to meet somebody and dance. It's very different than the way we think about it now. And probably since we were, you know, we've been born. I mean, (laughs) officially these bands were often referred to as dance bands. You know, Mm -hmm. that was sort of Mm -hmm. the term of of popular use. Mm -hmm. And this guy is in the thick of it. He is a pop star by this point. Picture your favorite, most successful pop star. He is in that sort of echelon at this moment in his life. They're all over the radio and their sound is, as we said, it's considered unique. Everybody loves it. They can't get enough. By 1939, Glenn is hosting his own radio show three times a week. They had all these hits. We were talking about it a little bit off air. I love Perfidia. Matt, you're an in the mood guy. You were talking oh, yeah. about that one. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is about that song, man. It puts me 
in the mood. Is that da 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 to cut a rug? I may be wrong. I think that's that one. Um, Tuxedo Junction, right? Yeah. Sunrise yep. Serenade. Mm-hmm. And there's also, some, yeah. not, not to remember, there's also Moonlight Serenade. You got your Sunrise Dude. Serenade and your Moonlight Serenade. But there's something about, I don't know, it's that it's the ride symbol and the drummer's not doing much at all, but like, just keeps it going and it just flows. It, and again, usually with the horn section, it's just, oh, just Krongbin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, well like, sure. Krongbin, Krongbin, that band uh, that is just a very, they're, they're, they're kind of like Thai uh, disco vibes almost, but like it yeah. is just a very sta- steady kind of drum uh, performance. But then you'll have the big old blasty drum yes. solo occasionally. Yes. yes. And it's neat too watching these cats play because they'll have the snare tilted at a weird angle and they'll mm-hmm. be playing side stick kind of, but that ride and less even the kick drum. It's not a kicky yep. kind of sound. It's a very, the ride is everything and everything comes from the, the bass, uh, upright bass. Yep. So they're not doing a big banging kick. That's not the sound of this type of music at all. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It's very cool. It is beautiful. If you have not had the pleasure of listening to the Glenn Miller version of Perfidia, do check it out. It's astonishing. So anyway, what we're saying is, yeah, the dogs get it. Let's leave it in. Uh, these are all bangers. And in a very real way, this guy's work begins to define the era of what we call swing music. He's at the top of his game. He's 38 years old, and the Western world is shocked when he suddenly disbands his orchestra, which was very successful. And he enlists in the U.S. Army to help with World War II. We have a, we have a little bit of his correspondence with Uncle Sam. Right. On August 12th, 1942, he wrote this letter uh, arguing that he could and his band could possibly be a morale booster for, you know, the boys in blue. That's the cops. What do you call them? It, it was exclusively boys at this time. Though. It's for the troops. Um, for the, the troops. boys in the red, white. There boys. you go. Um, and this is largely the foundation of what led to things like the USO, which is, you know, comedians, musicians, influencers that come and, you know, um, give special performances, you know, for the troops. But Glenn kind of took this upon himself and it was sort of like his idea. He, he wanted to, quote, put a little more spring into the feet of our marching men and a little more joy into their hearts. Like the end of Ghostbusters 2. Just <laughs> a little love in your heart. Well, it is. Oh, and it's quite, I think it's quite inspiring, actually, be, uh, because he it this solidifies him not only as a pop star, right, and an important figure, in that way, he becomes kind of an American hero just for deciding to do this and making it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And so from October of that year all the way to December of 1944, he is he's got he gets the rank of a captain. He's leading an outfit called the Army Air Force Band. This is huge. 42 people in this orchestra, a 19-piece swing band at its core. So they've got the classics. And then got the, you know, the stuff you cut a rug to. There were no chumps in the squad. Had this band continued with Glenn, we have no idea how many more contributions he would have made to the musical canon of America and indeed the world overall. Why don't we know what would have happened? Well, because his flight never arrived in Paris. Shades of missing in Alaska. Shout out to our pal John Walzak. Uh, shout out to Paul Deccant, who also works on that show. To date, in 2023, no trace of this plane has been discovered, or at least 
officially confirmed. So we have to ask ourselves, what happened to Glenn? How did one of the world's most popular musicians simply disappear? Here's where it gets crazy. Let's keep going. I mean, think about it. Uh, Taylor Swift, very popular musician. What if Taylor Swift one day hopped a flight to the Middle East and just vanished? People would commit suicide en masse. That is mm. what would happen. <laughs> it would it, not go yeah. well. The, the Swifties would find her. They would find her. There would be a million amateur detectives spawned overnight. Mm. Yeah. Or they would at least find a scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's weird because in this case, because of the time period, right? Because the world was at war when this occurred, because planes are getting shot down all over the place, right? In in different, uh, at the edges of battlefields, you know, across Europe. It is very weird that it occurs, right? With this very popular person on a flight that is military related, but it's not, it's not like a military mission in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could call it a casual flight, which several researchers have. Uh, let's, let's stick with the facts one moment longer before we get into the theories. Let's look at the provable stuff with help from the author Dennis Sprague uh, in his book, Glenn Miller Declassified, which is considered by far the most exhaustive investigation. Uh, he notes a couple weird things. Miller's flight, the one he actually made it on, was booked on short notice. He had already tried to get, like it was booked the night before because he had already tried and failed to get on several other flights. And uh, he basically took a really small airplane with help from a, a military buddy, an acquaintance that we'll get to. And it's, there were only three people aboard and he was just done waiting. He was so pissed that he had to be on standby and his first flight got canceled. And then he had another one that got canceled. I'm Glenn, Glenn MFing Miller. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. Well, let, let's talk about why. So his band was going to have to be in, in Paris, right? And they were mm -hmm. going to perform there. What on Christmas Glenn, Day, yeah. Yes, and what Glenn had to do as the leader, the brain behind that stuff, was all the things that like an executive producer would have to do, right? You've got to figure out how do I actually get, where, where are all of my people going to stay? What food are they going to be eating? You know, like all of the logistics, I guess, that was on him to figure all of that out, which is why he wanted to be there before the rest of the band, at least according to a lot of the writing right that's that's been put into the record um which is why he felt a real need whatever we get whatever i have to do i'm going to get there early mm -hmm. consummate professional uh he only got a seat on this tiny plane it is it's a nordun uc64a norseman you can see a picture of this and it looks almost like a biplane you know yeah it's but it's tiny. a unique cool aircraft don't you think Oh, unique, cool. Would you say easily identifiable? I might even. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, Miller, being a military man himself at this point, he has a little bit of juice with the 8th Air Force. He has an acquaintance, Lieutenant Colonel Norman Bessel, who is headed that way. He's like, oh, I'm going to France. You know what I mean? Why, why don't you just hop with me? I'm, I'm already headed there. This was ad hoc. This was a phone call. 
This was, can you do me a favor type stuff? Not necessarily secret, but not necessarily official. Oh, yeah, not official at all. Because let's talk about why the planes kept getting delayed. The weather was so terrible that the military was like, no, we can't fly anything across the English Channel right now. It's dangerous as hell. No, absolutely. We're not going to send our big aircraft over there that you could get a flight on Glenn Miller. And these guys were like, yeah, but what if we took a baby plane? (laughs) Just a tiny, tiny plane once Mm -hmm. in a while as a treat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so because this is ad hoc, the story goes that the Allied Command in Northwestern Europe, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, or Shaif, uh, they didn't know where he was. And so Miller and this lieutenant colonel and their pilot, a very young guy, a 22-year-old named John Morgan, they cross the channel and, or they attempt to cross the channel, the Eighth Air Force, the Allied authorities, they don't even know the plane is missing until three days later on December 18th. Uh, like you said, Matt, the rest of the band flew on separate planes, on, yeah. on much larger planes. They got cleared when they were supposed to go, basically, when the weather cleared up. And uh, we're going to get into it, but that's why the communication was so poor because of the ad hoc nature of this that you're talking about. So we can't stress that enough. The reason why nobody knew until the 18th, three days later, is because they kind of just winged it. Ah, worth it. Worth it. No (laughs) pun left behind. (laughs) They winged it. Oh, he's going to need a parachute. (laughs) (laughs) And so Miller's own wife, this is heartbreaking. His wife, Helen, doesn't learn that her husband has disappeared until December 23rd, making this the worst Christmas ever. Uh, On the 24th, the next day, uh, the United States government informs the press and the public and everybody is asking what actually happened. We have to remember this is before the age of ubiquitous social media, right? So your access to information is limited to radio and print and books and film, right? Mm-hmm. By that point. Yeah, that I've heard guys, we were talking about Taylor Swift. I've heard it um compared to if the Rolling Stones got on a flight just in their regular, you know, touring the world kind of thing and they just went down and we didn't know for weeks that the Rolling Stones had disappeared. The only reason we find out is, you know, it's like, and imagine it happening right around Christmas too. But like just the, the impact basically that the Stones had when they were coming up is what this guy had on the world. And just to lose him like that. And it, for it to be a mystery, I think is the craziest thing. It's definitely wild. That was a great comparison. And let's pause for a word from our sponsor. When we return, we'll dive into the official explanation and the theories. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. 
she would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it? Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean. And Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. So what officially happens? Uh, we want to give a shout out to our pal, friend of the show, Jordan Runtaw, legend in his time. Uh, he wrote an article for People magazine in 2019 about this, and we quite like the way he put it. Mm-hmm. Also did a really cool podcast called Stones Touring Party that uh, has got a lot of stones on private planes. And you can use your imagination and imagine what might have happened given the fervor around that U.S. tour that the podcast goes into. But Jordan points out that uh, in, in the article, th- this, uh, the official explanation is the most obvious. Miller and crew fell victim to bad weather um, and then goes on to talk about some meteorological terms that are probably of a particular interest to uh, aviators. Um, something called the cloud ceiling uh, had fallen to 1,500 feet, which is just a little bit more than 457 meters, if that's your bag, uh, in Twinwood Farm, which is the British point of departure uh, for uh, Basil and Miller's flight. And according to the story, France wasn't having great weather either. They were already dealing with similar meteorological conditions let's call it fog of war plus you know regular fog and uh french air traffic control i I, i'm still not sure on this one apparently french atc denied the pilot morgan's request to take this flight over the channel And they flew the plane anyway. But you can find other people arguing it was not foggy or that the flight was not unauthorized. Curiouser and curiouser. It's so weird because everything I've seen in in researching for this shows that it is. um, Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's just the official story that was put out there has been repeated so many Mm -hmm. times, you know, as we encounter some of these, some of these other stories, like uh, that, it just becomes a part of the record that everybody points to when they're going to write an article. Um, But it does seem like most people agree weather was at least a factor in the flight. If uh, the flight timing, at least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because again, for two days before the flight, he couldn't get on the plane because of the weather. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Uh, 
Jordan also notes that this particular craft these three men were on had a couple of known issues. One of them was an issue with the engine carburetors, and the other one was the fuel lines. Fuel lines can freeze <laughs> if the temperature is low enough, and it turns out that's bad for planes. Okay, now, ser- serious question. Isn't this a Canadian-created, crafted plane? Like You are correct, with yes. some pretty cold weather, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's just weird that the fuel lines would be an issue in a plane, you know, with <laughs> creative. But yeah, whatever. I did a casino De Niro shrug since, I saw <laughs> since we're audio on that. So, yeah. So in if you go to a 2014 episode of History Detective, where in the interview, Dennis Sprague, you'll see that he argues the aircraft got over the channel. It hit those freezing temperatures. That 86 is the engine, and this UC-64A goes nose down, face first into the water, and Dennis Sprague argues that this happened very quickly, like within the space of eight seconds. After taking off? No, not after taking off. Sorry. In the air, things go wrong. Eight seconds later, they hit the water, and he believes that all three people died near instantaneously wow i i guess that would make sense because the reason you get cloud cover right like that is because of two different walls of temperature right that are smashing up against each other i can imagine that there would you you know you hit that threshold near the channel or something you hit really cold temperatures and then that's it that 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 makes sense to me logically yeah it's a plausible explanation it's still the official explanation of the u.s it's it's just true. Planes are subject to a tremendous amount of variables in every single flight. Apologies for any of our fellow conspiracy realists who are listening to this on a plane now. You're going to be okay. Well, my dog doesn't think so. <laughs> be careful. So, obviously, not everyone accepts this explanation. The news goes nuts, and then it dies down. And fast forward... The world still spins. Other crazy things are happening. Indochina conflict, uh, the Cold War immediately starts after World War II. And it's not until the late 1980s that there is a renaissance in speculation. In 1985, a British diver named Clive Ward found what he thought might be the Norseman, the wreckage of it off the coast of France. He found According to the story, no crazy damage to the plane, no signs of the plane's serial number registration, and no human remains on the craft. As we record, this has still yet to be officially confirmed as Miller's plane, and so the speculation only grows. And in that speculation, there's some wild stuff. There's some wild stuff. There's some uh, pretty convincing... There's even a deathbed, not a confession, but like a deathbed realization almost that was recorded. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of theories, right? And uh, some of these touch upon, dare we say, the runway of conspiracy. But how many of those take off and how many actually land? Oh, no. Ghoulish, (laughs) I know. (laughs) So let's talk about the first one, friendly fire. Mm -hmm. What is friendly fire? Oh, man. It's when uh, you accidentally get kicked in the nuts during a game of dodgeball. 
Huh. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think it might have to do with your team accidentally. Yeah, by your team. Sorry. Yeah, but maybe not kick. Maybe hit with the ball. Sorry. There you go. I just, I don't know why I had that on the brain. For, for sure. It's a thing. It, you know, it sounds fun, doesn't it? Ooh, friendly fire. Uh, no, and it happens in like video games too. Certain games disable that where you can't accidentally shoot your team member or your party member. But I do believe there are some uh, online type games where you, you definitely can. And then that's very bad. Very bad for you. Um, but in war, the fog of war is a term that we we know uh, happens very often. People are freaked out. They're on edge. They're keyed up. Um, something might go, ah, pop out at you. And you just you, you shoot first and ask questions later. And then only to realize that it was your buddy, you know, Steve. Well, yeah. Classic Steve. Yeah, but it's also it's a, out. It's a, prank it's a horrifying thing that occurs to every military. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it happens way more than you think. Uh, unfortunately, and it is it. It's why things enough like, that they made a term for it. You know what I mean, right? Like, yeah. yeah, but it's why things like official buttoned-up flight plans that are communicated between like three or four different entities, right, are so important. Um, it's what was that chef thing? It's something you mentioned earlier, Ben. It's a it had a weird acronym to it, but it was like special Shaif. Yeah, uh, yeah. supreme, uh, supreme headquarter. Hang on. <laughs> so it rolls off the tongue of uh, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. Shaif's all right now. Rock the Casbah. <laughs> but that's why that's so important, because they are monitoring where specifically, like pretty relatively small avenues of travel that are permitted for different different types of aircraft at different times every day and and it's all to prevent friendly fire mostly i think because if you can't identify an aircraft as we all know if you're in a hot war time and there's some unknown aircraft flying around your airspace, you're probably not going to take too kind to it. Mm-mm. And I mean, and these are all meant to be sort of covert flight plans in the first place. So, you know, the good guys need to know exactly where, you know, good guys in quotation marks, uh, where they are so they don't accidentally mistake them for somebody else trying to be sneaky because everyone's trying to be sneaky in these situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How do you get the correct information out to people without that information being collected by rivals or enemy forces. Let's go to a guy named Fred Shaw. At the time, Fred Shaw was the navigator of a Lancaster plane that was based in Methwold, not Methworld. Uh, that cost so me a the little bit of research park. time. Yeah. <laughs> in Jersey, yeah. I, I was like, Methworld? Crazy. Uh, and on the day that Miller's plane disappeared, there were a bunch of Lancaster bombers. One of them, was Shaw's, Fred Shaw's, and they were returning from Germany because they were sent on a bombing raid, but the bombing raid had to be aborted because they didn't have the, again, to comms, right, to structure. They didn't have the stuff they needed in place to successfully conduct that raid. So they go all the way out there, they turn around, and the squadron says, crap, we can't land with all these bombs on these planes. Somebody get these MFM bombs off this MFM plane. And they had a, they had a redundancy. They had a contingency for this, I should say. They jettisoned 100,000 bombs into a place called the South Jettison Area. This was a known place, right, to the idea of mapping out safe places to do things. 
this was where you were supposed to go. It's like the public restroom for bombs. Isn't that crazy? Over the English Channel, like dropping a hundred thousand bombs, and and it's like that blows my mind because it has to do with weight, right? And fuel reserves, like how much fuel you have to get in certain places, and then mm-hmm. being able to land the the vehicle, the plane safely, like that. It's crazy to me that you would drop a waste that many bombs. <laughs> Because really those things, that. what? I mean, my God, we talk now about uh, how Which expensive tag, missiles yeah. are and everything. And I know those have way more sophisticated components on them, but dang, man. I really wanted <sighs> to make a George Jettison joke, but it just oh. didn't present itself. <laughs> there so, it is. I, it's, <laughs> I just, that's the best you can do. When you can't actually make the joke, you just say what the pun was going to be mm-hmm. and just leave it at that. <laughs> so uh so these bombs like you said no they get george jettisoned from uh four to five thousand feet above right from that yeah. elevation and at this time our buddy fred shaw who has never seen this occur before he looks down and out the window of his craft and according to him he sees these bombs exploding above the surface of the sea and at the same time he sees a plane about 2,500 feet below. This plane is flying south, which would have been the same direction of Miller's plane, if this was indeed Miller's plane. And so he, let's treat him as an eyewitness here, uh, and let's take a couple of his quotes that occur far after the fact, by the way. Absolutely. Uh, This is what he noted uh, years later. And as we know, eyewitness accounts, even on the best day, close to the event, can be a little sketch. But this is years later, just pointing that out. Uh, It was obvious to me that the aeroplane um, below was in trouble. So I watched intently. Then, just before it went out of sight, under the leading edge of the wing, I saw it flick over to port in what looked like an incipient spin. Don't quite know what that is, but it's a cool word. Um, I guess I'm I'm confusing it with insipid, which would be a really stupid spin. This is an incipient spin, which is something different, which we'll find out about in a minute. And eventually, I saw it disappear into the English Channel. Ben, I saw you Googling. What's an incipient spin? Oh, yeah. No, I was checking to make sure uh, the etymology was right before I said anything. It just means nascent, beginning, emergent. Oh, like okay. he sees the plane beginning to spin. Got it. Um, and I was the- actually looking up port, if we're also being honest. Good. Yeah, port yeah. is uh, front, <laughs> so left. Is- Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I guess they didn't realize they used nautical terms as well for airplanes. I think one, there's port, there's starboard. Starboard and stern, right? Or- yeah, yeah, and uh, they're used for spacecraft as well, Act. guys. We have to figure this out before we go into let's space. Do it. Well, before <laughs> we do that, let's get another quick quote from Mr. Shaw because I again, it's it's terms that we're unfamiliar with. He said, uh, "I crawled from my navigator seat and put my head in the observation blister," which I've seen some World War Two, you know. Stuff, some films where they used actual aircraft and things. And I think that's actually, it looks kind of like a bubble window, right? That you can look out more from the bottom, not even from the side, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you needed that visual acuity, right? Uh, And it also reminds me of that terrifying poem. It goes like this. The death of the ball turret gutter. From my mother's sleep, I fell into the state. And I hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze. Six miles from Earth, loosed from its dream of life, 
I woke to Black Flack and the Nightmare Fighters. When I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose. God. So, okay. So, other people on the craft, Pershaw, they confirm this. The bomb aimer reports the same sighting. Someone goes over the intercom and says they've seen something go down. But apparently, this downed plane observation doesn't get reported because the bombers are not in enemy territory and because the raid that they were sent on was cut short. They never actually bombed it. So there wasn't an official operation and it got lost in the bureaucracy. At least that's the story. Shaw doesn't, Shaw writes this down in his logbook, but he doesn't link this sighting to the disappearance of Glenn Miller until 1956 because he sees a film called The Glenn Miller Story. Yep. And of course, we've seen this over the years, right? Some big piece of media gets released and then other people come out of the woodwork to say, oh, I saw this or I saw that, which means then it's on everybody else to vet that story, right? Because none of us want to believe we're, I mean, we all want to believe in a compelling story like that. And someone's bringing truth to light for the first time, but we also don't want to be suckers. So when, when Shaw first comes out, he's looked at in that way, right? Like he's kind of dismissed. Right. Like, is this guy just after publicity, you know, is he doing some sort of macabre play for attention, but he checks his old logbook and the logbook is real. And he does have this writing of this observation that he definitely didn't make in 1956. He made it after this flight. And the problem is that it it gives us uh, a couple of prominent questions. First, could Miller's plane have strayed into that South Jettison zone? We know that, as you said earlier, there were approved routes. There were airways through which these craft were allowed to fly at certain times. And apparently, the approved shuttle route to France was pretty close to that South Jettison area, close enough that there's a margin of error. So if the weather is bad, if you're maybe an inexperienced pilot uh, and you don't have, you know, the the best grasp of navigating by instruments alone. Which we know his pilot, right, was not, at least he didn't have the extra certification you needed. Right. Yeah. So it, it is possible then with all these factors that they could have gone off the trail a bit. Uh, he would have been, Morgan, the pilot, would have been using a compass and it may have been human error. And when they strayed into this jettison zone, if they did, then maybe they got hit by, as you said, uh, no friendly fire. Shaw's not the only one saying this, though. No, you're right. I, I, Guys, just quickly, I have this image of bombs falling from bombers like that, right? Several thousand feet above you if you're in a, a noisy little plane like they're in, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think you would hear a thing. You know, we, we're so used to the sound of bombs falling from popular media, you know, and mm-hmm. all of that. I, mm-hmm. Well, maybe there is something there. I don't know. I don't, never I experienced don't know. it. It seems for effect, honestly. And depending on the size and, and the distance, perhaps. But yeah. Yeah. Maybe the explosion 
But again, but if you're on that plane and that type of bomb explodes just above where your heads are on that plane, I don't know if you even hear anything. It would, if it happened, I think it would just be over. Aren't bombs sometimes attached to parachutes? I think we, we talked about um, in a previous episode, we talked about a couple of different like crazy World War II bombing schemes, uh, but I these would be unguided bombs, right, at this time? I so, think that's right, yeah. So uh, they could have had parachutes, perhaps. Definitely, uh, to your point, World War II bombs did have some parachutes, right? It would increase visibility, and you'd know you're in a heap of trouble if you're flying along that path, right? And you can mm-hmm. see that either in the distance heading towards it or just alongside you, maybe parallel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Now let's introduce a guy named Victor Gregory, who captained the plane that Shaw was on. He later confirmed Shaw's account, and he said, look, our bombardier spotted the plane, called the navigator over to have a look. And then, according to this story, Fred Shaw identified the plane as a Norseman, as this UC-64A, which, good eye, I guess. That's amazing. Yeah, from what? What are we saying? Over 2,000 feet away? Mm, Over 1,000 feet away? Because the Norseman, theoretically, is flying underneath that cloud cover, right? Which is very low in Mm. the sky. Um, And just to be able to like, what? But here's the other thing. We did talk about how it's a very unique plane, right? There were were only a couple dozen that were operating uh, during the war, right? So, like, maybe... Maybe it stuck out, you know, maybe it was like when Tesla first came out, you would notice a Tesla immediately yeah. on the road. I don't know. It's it's a good argument, and I think it's safe to say that uh, were the three of us in that situation, we almost definitely could not randomly identify a small Canadian aircraft. Yeah. Well, and especially all the pictures I'm seeing, it's in black and white. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just, I was going to make a joke about fog and it'd be really hard to see those colors. Uh, yeah. All right. Sorry. <laughs> That's the fog of war you're talking about. There you there. go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything's in black and white. And so Gregory was asked, well, why didn't you come forward until later? And there's, there's a ton more about this, folks. We're just giving you the high level stuff, not an altitude joke. Uh, Gregory says, in part, look, my own concern was getting my airplane home safely. We're fighting a war. We lost thousands of planes. And then he adds, we had some pretty grim raids after that, and they didn't announce Miller's death until later. It had gone completely from my mind, which is believable. And, you know, he is he appears to be giving an honest, good faith explanation, right? And saying, you know, clearly he's also aware of the danger of uh, memory and eyewitness recollections. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you want to believe, right? You want to believe that humans are going to be honest about that and that they could recall something like this um, with that kind of clarity. Mm-hmm. And and wouldn't want to, you know, pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I, uh, it's, it's tough because... This isn't even close to the only story that's out there. Not at all. This story does uh, inspire the Royal Air Force to carry out an investigation, but there's no raid report on record because the raid was aborted. And because of this, there are so many 
branches of speculation, uh, especially on the friendly fire concept. Look, the author we cited earlier, Dennis Sprague, he himself considers the friendly fire theory untrue, and he he does a lot of forensics here. He points to a about an hour to an hour and a half discrepancy between when that jettison of bombs occurred and when he believes Miller's flight would have been in that area potentially. But like as like you said, Matt, this is far far from the only theory. All right, this is the deep water. This is the more fringe theories. There, There's a genre of alternative explanations about Glenn Miller's demise or disappearance that point to deep conspiracy. One of them comes out in 1997. A German journalist named Udo Ulfkot, Ulfkot help me with that one. Oh, I think he did a fine job. I was going to say Udo Ulfkot. Perfect. Perfect. You have to yell when you say name like that. The only way to, to do it. It's like Klingon. Um, yeah. No, so hey, what, look, I'm being yeah. flippant. No disrespect. The German language is a beautiful language. I just have a fun time with over enunciating it and, uh, and saying it in a bit of a yelly fashion. Uh, what did this guy do, though? Uh, well, he was, uh, a, as you said, a very talented uh, and intelligent German journalist who really threw himself into the research um, and looking through um, just, you know, hundreds of pages of American and German intelligence that he was able to get access to, documenting wartime efforts for a book that he was writing on German intelligence agencies uh, in particular. And Ufkota uh, supposedly did find some evidence to cover this whole thing up, and he he argued that Glenn Miller arrived in Paris on December 14th, uh, alive and well, but later died uh, under some titillating and scandalous circumstances. I mean, perhaps let's just say in the company of a lady who was paid to keep his company. Right. And uh, and was a, a professional at yes. keeping company uh, such that she made his heart go pitter patter and he died. Kaput. Pitter patter kaput. I want to maybe this isn't necessary, but in my mind, guys, I just want you to know I'm separating this theory into two very distinct things, sure. which is he actually made it there. Uh, in some kind of cover-up situation, right? And then that there was this other thing potentially with a um, a sex worker. But also, just in general, that he was working in some other capacity for an intelligence side uh, to... Because to, there's stuff in there. There are other theories that I don't think we're really going to touch on, but that he was actually on some covert mission, almost of diplomacy, with mm-hmm. Germany? Well, mm-hmm. uh, Backdoor yeah, negotiations. This is not out of the question, though. We know things like this did happen, and we have examples of folks who were able to use their status, uh, whatever it might have been, to help their government. Um, there, there's actually a, a really cool podcast, a fiction, uh, not a fictional, like a scripted-type podcast that um, iHeart is uh, developing right now that should be out soon. Um, spoiler alert, slightly, just a little bit of a, a tip about this guy named Fodor, who was um, this the founder of this very influential travel guide and because he was always traveling around and doing scoping out new things for these guides he was a perfect candidate to be a covert agent and he very much was and that is what this uh the series is about i believe there's actually a documentary out there around about it too this is definitely something that's known um we, we should talk about fodor on the podcast sometime maybe a little closer to when the show comes out 
And to be honest, uh, not only is that kind of stuff possible and plausible, like friendly fire, it may occur more than we think, right? But it's also not necessarily James Bond glorious type stuff. You know, it's like, let's have a conversation off the record Mm -hmm. in a way that the official powers can plausibly deny things happened if that conversation doesn't work out. And we know, by the way, uh, to this point, we know that Miller was involved in propaganda. Many allied figures, many Axis figures, people of note, celebrities, entertainers, they were involved in propagandistic exercises, right? Miller made broadcast to Germans in the German language where he was attempting to persuade them like, you know, Guten Tag, guys, it's your buddy Glenn. Give up the war. You know what I mean? Be on the right side of history. And that may have been a factor in what it was doing. But for that to be the explanation, then we're asking a lot. We're ascribing a lot of talent to whomever would cover that up. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, well, do you guys remember when you found out Julia Child had some operations with the, what is that? Oh, the thing before the CIA. OSS. That one. <laughs> like, I remember learning that and just being dumbfounded. But it's what, it's exactly what you're speaking to, Ben. Being able to use that celebrity and almost universal appreciation to get messages across. So it is almost psychological stuff and operations more than anything. But uh, it does seem like an enemy would not want to take him out, maybe for those same reasons. Right. You would uh, ideally you would want to turn the piece right in the game. But I, I mean, OK, if if this stuff about the if the diver finds this plane right in 87, uh, if there is truth of any sort to uh, a conspiracy, if the guy is acting as more than the world, one of the world's most popular musicians, then why, why cover it up? Was it embarrassment on behalf of the allies or the Axis powers they were speaking with? And if you planted a plane, it's crazy. You'll see people arguing the plane was planted in the channel. How are you going to go to all that trouble and then forget to add bodies? Uh, it just—it feels like a misstep. Because they think it's going to be found in the 80s and the bodies would just be disintegrated by then? Okay, so famously inefficient governments are the the folks who can't figure out how to get people to pay the taxes every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the same ones going, hear me out. In 1987, there'll be a plane found... And this will put the whole Glenn Miller debacle to bed. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, chuff, chuff, chuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's weird to me because there are human beings that have devoted most of their lives to researching this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of similar to the, the Zodiac researchers who maintain things and just like that's their thing, you know, and they're going to find out every piece of information that ever comes up. Every interview, they've got it and they're going to analyze it. There are human beings out there that look at the Glenn Miller story and do the same thing like uh, Rick Gillespie of Tiger, I think is how you would say it. The International Group for Historic Re- Aircraft Recovery. Mm-hmm. And that's a cool they, acronym. Well, they look at stuff like this. And 
often it's almost like um not skeptoid but um what's the one where they uh snopes snopes dope it yeah it, it reminds me of those where you you almost look at anything new and you automatically say no to it unless you can prove it right mm-hmm. um and i do wonder if there's almost too much skepticism even in myself right now when i'm considering this because there's it's got to be a possibility Right. And we don't know enough to say that did not occur. Exactly. And, and, and that's the, this gets us to the next genre of theories surrounding Glenn Miller, the weird stuff. What if he was a spy? What if he stepped the wrong way and old Ike was like, get rid of him? Or what if he, what if he was taken by enemy forces? What if he was sent to make some sort of backroom negotiation and things went sideways for him. I mean, there. I also, probably one of the craziest ones I read, and I don't know much about this one, guys, but I read this idea that factions of the U.S. military decided to kill Miller off the record because he was threatening to expose, quote, a cabal of gay U.S. officers, which sounds nuts until we realize that, you know, uh, legendary heroes of World War II, like Alan Turing, were prosecuted or persecuted and then prosecuted for their sexual orientation. Yeah. And had their lives ruined. I mean, it really, at the the time that was tantamount to, you know, being tried for witchcraft. I mean, it's really serious business. So yeah, the, the, the accusation, whether, whether we have any details that would actually tie Miller to something like that or to have any kind of, uh, I don't know. I mean, I bet a lot of band leaders were probably pretty famously homophobic back then. So maybe that in and of itself. But that's a little bit of a stretch. Perhaps. Also, the idea maybe that he faked his own death. Um, mm-hmm. We don't really mm-hmm. have any detail to support that. The guy was absolutely at his peak. You know, he was a monster celebrity. We know that it, at least it feels that his uh, sentiment for wanting to do this USO-esque stuff was coming from a place of goodness, a place of like, you know, really wanting to help. Um, it doesn't really, that, that angle doesn't really make any sense. I don't know, Ben, if you found any, anything, uh, any breadcrumbs on that one. Unfortunately not at this point, because it, it kind of like, we're talking about the long game of telephone. That is history. We take a couple of things we know to be true, right? The homophobia, the persecution of that, which was very much real, also continues today, of course. And we take the fact that this immensely popular figure with close ties to the U.S. government disappeared, and then people are trying to kind of like red string it together. And yeah. unfortunately, that's that's not enough, uh, I think we can say. Now, look, if it turns out that one is the truth, then we're going to be the first people to come on on the show and say, hey, here's what actually happened. Uh, there's also the idea he never even got on the plane. But Ben, what would it take to to convince you? Because like I right now, I'm skeptical that I could be convinced. I don't think Glenn Miller is real. No, but, but what I mean is like, <laughs> even if somebody brings a, a document, like this is definitely... A, a CIA document that proves that this is actually what occurred, you know, or something. Mm-hmm. I would be crazy skeptical simply because of where we are with technology and, you know, uh, the way we are with human interest in just doing something like that that might get us a little, what, clout or something on social media. I don't know. But, and, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to my kid about something kind of similar to that. Um, they were just really fed up with the whole, like, being bullied into having a position on Palestine and Israel. Like, my kid, my 14-year-old kid, like, just fed up with this and literally was like – I couldn't possibly have a stance or an opinion on it that would be of value to, to to the point where I'm just I don't feel the need to just talk about it all the time because I don't really have anything to say. But then you have so many people flooding with all of this information slash misinformation. And, and that's they're fed up by that, too, because it's just so much stuff out there that it's almost like it makes your head spin. And like, are, are, am I trying to are people trying to play me? They're bullying me. And we know it's like so many different sides of things that it is stymieing. You know, it really does kind of make you give you pause. And it's like, can I trust anything? Can I trust any of this? Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. We also know that uh, committing pseudocide, faking one's death is is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. Like even back then, and and I think you guys are making great points about the post-truth environment, right? Like evidence can be faked now quite effectively, by the way, especially if we're talking about, you know, just a screen grab of a, of a, a apparently blurry document. You can make that stuff. You can make it at home. Try it out yourself. I'm kidding. Don't. It's probably a crime on some level. It is kind of fun. Like, get some Photoshop time in. It's fun. (laughs) It's a good basic skill to have. Yeah. Right. Especially in this gig economy. But the the thing is, there is. I read in my mind, I read that as gig economy. Like, gigabyte, you know? Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's do, you know what? Let's be the first three person TED talk. Gig economy. And then we'll just sort of yes and through it. Right. Sick. Dude. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so much synergy in that TED talk. Mm-hmm. We're really we're really leveraging our synergy. Uh, look, as far as we can tell, folks, and there is a lot of work that's gone into this. Miller does not appear to have faked his death, or there's no proof that he did so. It does appear that he did leave on that plane. He was leaving on a jet plane and never landed in Paris. You can find more and more stuff like uh, Dr. Chris Valenti is probably one of the more famous or infamous people with uh, alternative theories about what happened to Miller. Uh, and he, he's he got some problems. It's a story for another day. Maybe he claimed that he got a phone call from a government official who was threatening him and saying, you know, harm is going to come to your family and to you if you reveal the truth about Glenn Miller. And then he said he could not reveal his findings as a result. Oh, wow. Of course. No, I'm just joking. I mean, that's I don't know. The I think it's still astounding to me that in May of 2023, CBS News, like a local channel in Tampa, can put on an entire story that only lasts a couple minutes, right? But there's a there's an actual reporter out in the field talking to this guy, Dr. James D'Angelo, who says, yes, I was an oncologist, but now I'm obsessed with searching for Glenn Miller, and I think I know where he is. They do the whole story on it tell it again. Right. And then at the end of the story, it's basically like, Oh, well we, we think we know the serial number for the engine. So if we did find the engine, we could prove that it was the correct one, which is something, which is something, but it's also nothing. It's kind of Oak Island esque, you know, uh, this is the truth though. Sadly, people disappear every day. 
And if we go back to Dennis Sprague, uh, and I believe our pal Jordan agrees with him, uh, this guy who did the best investigation so far, the most credible one, he believes it is a perfect storm of bad weather, human error, and defects in the Norseman aircraft, and that brought the plane down. But until there's conclusive proof, until there's that engine with the serial number or human remains, then these alternative explanations are going to proliferate. So it's a pickle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, huge uh, shout out to Jordan, who does great work on all kinds of history mysteries, uh, specifically ones that um, involve musicians. Uh, rivals. And, and was yeah, good. Rivals was a cool show. It's still out there. It, did, it ended, but there's some, there's a good catalog out there. Please do check out Stone's Touring Party. It ended as well. And there's some great bonus content in there. And we're just really proud of that show. And uh, I, you know, I think it's a really interesting history um, of a band and of the United States and uh, what it was like, you know. Know, to be a kid going to a concert uh, in the South, you know, in the nineteen early 1970s, you know, where the atmosphere was definitely uh, a little bit uh, fraught. Yeah. Uh, guys, can I just shout out a website really quick? Because oh, I, I found it to be fascinating research here. Uh, T-I-G-H-A-R dot org. There's like a five, I think it's more than, the, more than this, but a five part series of just just words, you know, written on a web page, but it gives you some of the most detailed information about flight logs and times and, you know, what communications were supposed to occur uh, when that flight was going to take off on, it was on the 15th of December, right? Uh, 1944. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it just, I really enjoyed the way I could see a full picture, right, of uh, military personnel that are supposed to log certain things with certain groups, and it didn't seem to happen that morning, or at least mm-hmm. officially it didn't happen. Which makes you wonder. Uh, we can't wait to hear your thoughts, folks. Is this a case of tragic death compounded by interest in a public figure, or is there more to the story, something they don't want you to know? Tell us, and also tune in later, because fans of J.D. Salinger, the time has come. We're going to have our pal Jordan over on air in the near future to talk about the catcher in the rye and whether it was a trigger for assassinations. That's what a bomb sounds like when it's falling in a cartoon. Anyway, sorry. This is a nose flute, you guys. I, I, I found this plastic thing laying around my studio, and then I was at a music store, and I saw the same one, and I was like, what the heck is that music store? I was like, that's a nose flute. I'm like, how did this end up in my studio? And then I just looked at a video on how to play it. It's a stupid instrument, but you can't make that whistle sound like a, like a cartoon bomb falling. Um, what do you think the stupidest instruments are? <laughs> Let us know. How do you feel about the trombone? Got any theories about Glenn Miller? And then how he may have uh, disappeared, let us know. Yeah, you can find us all over the place. Hey, we are Conspiracy Stuff on YouTube. That is primary right now. Go back to YouTube. Make sure you've got your, what is it, notifications now, guys. You hit the bell button. Make sure you've got that. We're going to be putting up videos and more videos with our faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, at least three of you are interested in that. <laughs> well, there's three of us. So that'd be one apiece. So. Exactly. And then we'd be in business. Uh, you can find us on X, on Facebook, also Conspiracy Stuff, Instagram, and TikTok Conspiracy Stuff Show. And there's other ways to get in touch with us, aren't there? That's right. You can call us any old time of day, any old time of night. We've got a number. We keep it simple. Say it with us at home. one stdwytk You'll hear a hopefully familiar voice. You'll hear a beep like so. 
beep, uh, or maybe a nose flute effect. Kidding, it's a beep. And when you hear that, you'll have three minutes. Those three minutes are yours. Go nuts. Tell us what's on your mind. Give us leads to new episodes. Let us know if we can use your name and or message on the air. Most importantly, if three minutes doesn't fit, we got your back. Send us the links. Send us the footage. Send us the videos. Take us to the edge of the rabbit hole. We will do the rest. All you have to do is drop us a line at our good old-fashioned email address where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.